0: This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. I'm Aaron Miller, I'm a travel writer, and this episode we are about to do one of the most amazing road trips on the planet. 40,000 miles, 17 countries, overland, in a jeep. We are doing the Americas all the way from Alaska to the ends of the earth on the southern tip of Argentina. It's going to be epic. Are you ready? Let's go. We are traveling today with Dan Grek. He wrote a book about this journey called The Road Chose Me. When I read it, it really fired me up. I've done big road trips before and off-road stuff. I love messing around in Jeeps, but he inspired me to think bigger and bolder. And I tell you what, one of these days, I'm going to do this trip too. And I think you might as well. This is a story about one of the best long-distance road trips on the planet. It's a story about overlanding, living self-sufficiently on the road, and it's a story about making your dreams come true. That's Dan's message. He's just an ordinary guy who had a crazy idea to drive across two continents, and he made it come true, so you can too. If you're inspired to get in touch, check out his YouTube channel, The Road Chose Me, his Instagram page, also The Road Chose Me, and his book, guess what the road chose me and i love that title by the way because it just speaks to that calling for adventure and exploration that i think we all feel i'll put all his details up in the show notes and on the website so please do check all that out But before we set off, remember, if you're enjoying the show, please help support it by spreading the word. Leave a review, tell a friend, connect on social media. And if you can, I'd also love it if you'd sign up to the newsletter at armchair-explorer.com. Every month I send out my curated list of the best travel podcast episodes to listen to that month, the best adventure travel trips coming up to get excited about, and the best travel writing and general inspiration to get more exploration in your life, it's free, it's fun, and I hope it's useful too. You can also book any of the trips you hear about on the show at the website. Uh, just click on those links, I'll take you to the relevant booking platforms, but you'll also help support the show when you do that. And most importantly, just come and connect and hang out. We are building a community of people that love the outdoors, that love exploring, and want to celebrate the amazingness of this planet by just jumping headfirst in. If that sounds like you, come and hang out. We're going to get on well. But for now, fire up your engines because we are about to set off on one of the most amazing road trips I've ever heard about. 40,000 miles all the way from Alaska to the southern tip of Patagonia. It doesn't get more epic than that. But first, Dan's going to set the scene.
1: I grew up in a small farming town, uh, kind of in the middle of nowhere. You know, we were very white collar and it just kind of was the normal thing to do was, you know, go to work every day. That's kind of what life was about, I guess. I read a few books of kind of you know mountaineers around the world and maybe watch the odd movie, but it was always kind of like that's not the same world that I live in. That's you know completely unrealistic. And I guess I, I didn't think I would stay in my small town forever, but I didn't ever dream of like going and seeing the world either. That didn't seem possible. And so it wasn't until the end of university, like I was already 22 years old, before I kind of decided I wanted to go and have a look around and see more of the world. Um, And so I flew over to California and I got a job at a ski resort and I met all kinds of people having adventures who just, they didn't have much money and they weren't experts or professionals or anything, but they just wanted to have adventures, so they were. And I think the thing that still sticks with me to this day is that these guys like none of them had any money but they were some of the happiest people I've ever met in my whole life you know kind of the opposite of you know people who go to work every day who who groan when their alarm goes off and and don't want to get out of bed you know these people were like bursting with happiness and excitement for the day and that that stuck with me more than anything it's like you, you can choose to live a life of you know, like enjoyment and happiness if you're willing to sort of break away from the normal.
0: This is a theme that comes back throughout the book and it's something I've written about and talked about a lot in this show as well. Sometimes we can get stuck in the mindset of where we come from. We grow up in these in these cliques of family and friends and schools and society and it's hard to break out of that. But what Dan realised on that trip, on that first big adventure of his to Lake Tahoe, all the way from middle of nowhere rural australia was that there were people there just like him but they were living a completely different life to the one that he thought was even possible from his hometown he thought the path of his life was pretty much set out for him that's just what people did you could read about adventures sure you could watch them on the tv but you couldn't actually do it for yourself could you Well, it turns out he was wrong. You can, and he did, and he started dreaming, and that dream just got bigger and bigger and bigger until it burst out and changed his life forever.
1: I knew that, you know, working every day wasn't making me happy, and so I started thinking about where I could go, and and I'd always wanted to see Alaska. I think since reading Call of the Wild as a kid, and it was, you know, kind of this, like, epic, amazing place that I'd always dreamed of. Um, And I had a little Jeep and I had a tent and like a camping stove and you know, some hiking gear. And so I was setting out to go up to Alaska and a friend just before I quit work, I told him the whole story and he was like, well, Dan, why don't you drive down to Mexico after that? Surf on the beach and eat street tacos and, and then, so that's when kind of my mind started growing. I went and I bought a map of Mexico. I thought I better figure out, you know, what does it even look like? And kind of looking at the map for a day, on the bottom of the map is the rest of central america you know guatemala belize and i start kind of looking at all of those and thinking like "Oh, well, they sound amazing too why wouldn't i go down there and then actually i went back to the same store and i bought a map of south america so now i've got a map of north america central and south all laid out on my uh, wall actually in my bedroom and that was when i really started thinking like can I drive all the way like to Argentina? I thought it would take about a year and I thought I would drive 20,000 miles. Um, and I ended up, the trip took two years uh, and I drove 40,000 miles through 17 different countries.
0: We need more friends like that in our lives, don't we? Not what are you doing throwing away your career? What are you doing not going to Mexico? I think that might be the question I pose to myself at every life junction from now on. Because... It's about recognising that intrinsic freedom that we all have, isn't it? To choose whatever life we want, even if it breaks the mould, even if it doesn't fit into the cliques we came from, even if it means driving to the ends of the earth.
1: I roamed Alaska for about two months, um, hiking, camping. I went paddling with icebergs, um, just kind of trying to soak it all in. But actually winter was coming. The, The leaves were turning a little bit. And, and the nights were starting to get cool. And so that kind of spurred me to keep moving further south. Every every time it felt cool in the evening, I would put in a big driving day, you know, south. And then the weather would get a little bit warmer again.
0: But he had one stop before he left. And in many ways, it was the most important. Because the reason he chose Alaska wasn't just because of Jack London or because it's an incredible place. It was because one of Dan's heroes and one of my heroes, too, is a guy called Chris McCandless, um, whose life story was told in the book and the film Into the Wild. If you don't know it, I will put details up on the website. It's amazing. Please go check it out. It's one of my all-time favorites. Um, But Chris's story starts really in 1990, uh, and this isn't a spoiler at all. He had just graduated college, and he leaves this comfortable suburban life to go on a kind of Kerouac-esque adventure, hitchhiking across America, where he winds up in Alaska... Uh, because he has this dream of living alone in the wild and surviving off the land, which he does. He he finds this abandoned old bus in the middle of nowhere, which he writes in his journal and calls it the magic bus. And he makes camp there right out in the middle of nowhere in Alaska. And uh, tragically, He would eventually die there too. Um, And visiting the magic bus has become something of a pilgrimage for people that have been inspired by Chris's story and the way he lived his life. But it's not easy to get to.
1: Yeah, you can. So it's on this trail called the Stampede Trail, which I guess it's right near Denali National Park, kind of in central Alaska. And you can drive in, I think, the first 15 miles or something, and then you have to hike about 15 miles roughly. On this kind of overgrown it used to be I think a logging or a mining road in the 60s um, and so it's this like wilderness Alaska you know there's bears there's mosquitoes are horrendous the trails really overgrown um, and the real crux of it is you have to cross a river um, and it was the river actually that Chris wasn't able to cross in the summer and that's why he passed away um, and it's deep and fast flowing and freezing cold it's glacier melt Um, So it's, you know, it's a real barrier, it it kind of stops a lot of people making it. It's such a bizarre feeling. You're sort of hiking along this trail, you know, and you've got your head down and heavy pack and you're kind of tired. And you round a corner and then suddenly it's just like 10 meters in front of you. And it's it's really surprising because it looks identical to the way it does in the movie. You feel like you've been there before, even though you haven't. Um, And then the bus itself, it is like really peaceful and really calm. Um, and I'd always thought that it would be a sad place to spend time, you know, because Chris actually passed away there, but it turns out it's the exact opposite of that. It's a really uplifting, energising place because people have written stories in this guest book, um, other people who've hiked into the bus, and they've written about how Chris inspired them and about how they travelled across the whole country to get to the bus and, you know, they had trials and tribulations getting there and, you know, it kind of changed their whole life. This. Story of Chris, who has now inspired millions of people. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a really, really energizing place to spend time.
0: Chris's message in the book is about living life purposefully, not just following the status quo, it's about living authentically and to the full. It's about, as I say often on this show, if you make it to the end, it's about daring to be truly alive. In the book, Dan writes, Of all the lessons I can learn from Chris, I want to remember this one the most, not to live on autopilot, unsure of meaning or place, but to always live my life consciously and with purpose. After Alaska, Dan drove south, he hiked the West Coast Trail, one of Canada's most stunning long-distance hikes through the desolate, empty beaches and huge temperate rainforests of Vancouver Island. He crossed through Utah and the national parks of the American West, and then eventually he reached the Mexican border, and in many ways that's when the real adventure starts.
1: That was definitely uh, one of those days where the, the expedition suddenly got real um, and I, I felt like it really stepped up a level of kind of intensity and difficulty um, and so I guess it was like equal parts kind of excitement and you know uh, really looking forward to what was to come but also like a little bit of trepidation and a little bit of uncertainty of you know, I didn't know if I could learn Spanish. I didn't know if I'd be able to kind of get around well enough. And so it was it was exciting in that whole, like, th- there's a whole world here in front of me that I've never even set foot in. So I'm, I'm gonna find out what it's like. And, you know, I just spent a few days in San Diego and it's only five miles from San Diego to the border. And so it was really shocking to suddenly have, yeah, like open sewers and people who clearly were struggling to find enough food to eat. Um, is really this crazy contrast and this really shocking, kind of you know eye-opening moment of just right here on the other side of the fence are people who are really struggling to survive.
0: I've had the same thing in Big Bend National Park in Texas, absolutely awesome place. Um, there is what is surely the smallest international border crossing in the world. And I, I did a story about it a while ago. It is like taking a teleporter to a different world. I parked my car on the U.S. side, walked across neatly manicured pavements into an air-conditioned passport control office, opened the door on the other side into Mexico, and immediately fell into knee-deep mud. Literally, there were no pass, no buses. I had to hail a guy in a rowboat to cross the Rio Grande and then pick me up and his donkey to take me to the nearest town, Boquias, uh, the, the differences were so stark between the two sides, yet they were so close together. One side didn't have running water, didn't have enough to drink. The other side, I literally saw a couple wash the mud off their boots with iced bottles of Evian. And for me, what I realized doing that was whatever you believe, whatever side of the fence you're on, whatever your politics are, there's also just something about being a good neighbor. It doesn't feel right to have so much when the person living next to you has so little. But despite that realization being kind of hard, Dan had a ton of fun in Mexico and beyond. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at nissanusa.com.
1: I pretty much uh, wanted to see everything. I I, uh, had this funny idea of, you know, maybe this is the only time in my life I'll get to explore this area. So I tried to sort of zigzag and, and pinball around as much as I could. Um, So I went down Baja California in Mexico, And at the southern tip, I caught a ferry across to the mainland and then hugged the coast of Mexico before I cut across to Cancun. From Cancun, I went south into Belize and then Belize to Guatemala and then made sure to visit all of the countries. So it was El Salvador and I kind of zigzagged up into the mountains or down to the coast and then Honduras to Nicaragua, I think, then Costa Rica, then Panama. In Antigua, in Guatemala, um, it's kind of surrounded by these volcanoes that are active Um, so you're in the city and you can look up and see like smoke coming out of the top of a mountain that's only uh, you know a few kilometers away Um, so it's it's kind of a weird experience and and you think you know what does that mean you know is this dangerous like I don't know Um, but anyway so you can go actually hike up this mountain and so I did and you can hike all the way until there is actually lava like right in front of you you know like less than five yards away Um, And it's the most surreal, bizarre experience to actually see flowing liquid rock it's the kind of thing that I assumed is reserved for National Geographic type people. But actually, you can just walk right up, you know, and like poke it with a stick. It's it's this unbelievable feeling. You know, I, I think I spend most of my days, you know, you're either walking on concrete or asphalt, or even when you're in the mountains, kind of just rocks that they look dead and they look like they've been there for a million years, you know, and, and nothing really changes. Um, but to see this, like lava coming out of the ground, you know, and it, it moves quite quickly, um, you, you realise it's been doing that for millions of years, um, and it's right under our feet all of the time doing that. It's this really bizarre realisation that things aren't just static, and that uh, the rocks that you're walking on, they weren't even rocks last week; they were actually liquid. Um, and yeah, it's just kind of this this mind-bending perspective of like, oh, I, I always thought mountains were just like dead and static, but actually they're not. They're really dynamic and they move and they grow. It kind of changes, I think, the way that you, you look at the world and the way that you think about your own place in the world when you realise, you know, it, it isn't just static, that it's actually moving underneath you.
0: Pacaya is one of the most active volcanoes in the world, so it's pretty crazy that you can hike up it literally to the crater. In the book, he talks about the smell of sulfur the closer he gets, the smell of burnt rubber as the soles of people's shoes around him start melting. He talks about the wind shifting suddenly, picking up heat from the crater and singeing his legs. At one point, he pokes a stick into the lava and it disintegrates instantly. And he talks about roasting marshmallows on the actual lava itself. For real, people sell them on the way up. And yes, it does put your finest campfire s'mores to shame. But I also love this realisation which he has up there, and I've had it too. We may think the ground beneath us is solid and unchanging, but that's just an illusion created by the shortness of our lives. If we could live long enough to experience deep time, geologic time, we would see that nothing is solid, nothing is unchanging. Everything is in constant flux. Mountains rise and fall. Oceans flood and recede and flood again. Looking into that lava, and I had a similar experience to this uh, in the geyser fields of Yellowstone, is like looking into the inner workings of the planet itself. And it's a view you can't really forget because in that moment, you realize that the earth is alive and moving and that everything is changing all the time. You realize that everything is impermanent. But because of that, Everything is unique and precious too, and we're just passing through. Speaking of which, after Panama, passing through becomes impossible. The Pan-American highway disappears into dense, impenetrable jungle before it joins Colombia. There is no road and no way through, so the only solution for Dan was to load up his beloved Jeep, which by this point he is regularly referring to as his girlfriend, who can blame him, 40,000 miles, it didn't break down once, and ship it to Cartagena where he will meet it for the last part of his journey through South America. Dan picks up the story now having just zigzagged around the beaches and jungles and coffee plantations of Colombia, crossed over the Andes and into Ecuador.
1: Ecuador to me is such a fascinating country. I always say that it feels like three countries stuck together because you can be on the ocean surfing and it'll be really hot and you get sunburnt. A few hours later, you can drive up into the mountains and be looking at glacier-capped volcanoes. And then a few hours later, you can drop down into the jungle and there are monkeys swinging through the trees. Um, and so for me, Ecuador is just this amazingly like, friendly, happy place. It was so happy, in fact, that he ended up staying there for a few
0: months. He got a job working at a hostel at the foot of Cotopaxi Volcano, one of the most beautiful mountains in South America. Just a perfect snow-capped cone shooting up 19,000 feet from the plains. It was an amazing place to stop. He spent his days hiking and horseback riding and working on the farm and jumping off the nearby waterfall but he also needed to stop. He'd been traveling for a year, alone, moving all the time. And as incredible as that sounds, it was also hard.
1: For me, solo travel, um, it's something, some days I really love it and some days I really hate it. Um, I feel like, you know, you miss out on a lot of companionship and you miss out on sharing experiences. So in in a funny way, some days I think that some of what I did almost isn't real because I have no one to share it with. I have no one to remember or to talk about it. Um, It's only only real in my memory, no one else's. I sort of have to look at my own photos to actually think, you know, was that just a dream? Um, But on the flip side of that, I think solo travel can be a lot uh, more rewarding because you're by yourself, the way that locals interact with you is a lot different. Um, So people would often approach me and ask if I needed anything, or they would invite me in for a meal, or they'd just sit down with me and strike up a conversation, simply because I was by myself and I had no one to talk to. Um, You know, so I guess it depends on the day, it depends how I'm feeling, whether I enjoy being by myself, or whether I kind of start to get lonely and feel a bit lost and a bit kind of listless and directionless by myself.
0: When they found Chris McCandless's body uh, in the magic bus, next to it was a book where he had written these words... Happiness is only real when shared. Chris travelled across America looking for a more authentic and meaningful way of being. But at the end of it, knowing he was near death, what he scribbled in shaking hands, his final epiphany as he lay there starving, sick, and knowing that he was near death, was that purpose, joy, a good life, only means something if it's shared. That's incredibly profound, I think, and and part of what Dan is referring to. Solo travel is amazing. It's life-changing. I love it. It helps you grow. It builds your confidence. And things just happen when you travel alone that don't when you're with another person. People are more drawn to you. You make new friends. You're forced out of your shell. But it can feel empty after a while, too. Because happiness, just as Chris realized in those final moments and just as Dan realized after a year solo on the road, is not something... Internal, it's not something that we can own ourselves, but it's something that we must create and share with others for it to be truly real. Happiness is like music, I always think. And what fun is music if you're just dancing alone? So eventually, Dan left Ecuador, he spent four months at the hostel, he made friends, he shared that happiness. He even ended up climbing Cotopaxi, which he describes as the most difficult thing he's ever done, but also the most beautiful view he's ever seen. Chains of volcanoes rising thousands of feet all around him, smoking craters, glaciers sparkling like stars in the dawn light. But the road was calling to him. And from Ecuador, he crossed into Peru, drove all around that amazing country, did one of the hardest treks in the world, the Huaywash Circuit, 88 miles, nine mountain passes, 33,000 feet in elevation gain. That is like hiking to the summit of Everest from base camp, three times to give you a frame of reference. And then he crossed into another planet entirely.
1: Bolivia is such an amazing country uh, and I find it really difficult to describe because it's unlike anywhere you've ever been before. So I always say when when you see mountains, you could usually refer to them, you know, like some other mountain or or a river or a lake or a beach. You say, oh yeah, this is like a beach I've seen before. But when you get to Bolivia and, and especially the salt flats, you've never seen anything like that in your life. So To be out there on this endless expanse of salt, you have no scale perspective. So you have no idea whether you're like 10 kilometers or a thousand kilometers from the nearest anything. Um, Even when you just park your vehicle and then walk away from it, you you really suddenly feel isolated and you feel like you're on the moon. And nothing that you've ever experienced in the world is similar. So your whole body and all of your feelings get all really strange and really like i don't actually understand what's going on anymore i can't relate to this i teamed up with a couple of other people in vehicles and, and a guy on a motorbike uh, but we set off you know we had no support vehicle we had no tour guide we just struck out on our own and, and kind of went for it in the wilderness i think it took us about five days um, and we, we took our time you know we didn't want to just kind of blast through Uh, we camped a night on the salt flat we camped a night at a hot spring that's way back in there Uh, and it's breathtakingly beautiful you know like bring tears to your eyes when you watch the sunrise and the sunset it's amazing covering
0: 3681 square miles roughly the size of the big island of hawaii this enormous stark white plain stretches out to an infinite horizon on all sides But what's truly spectacular about this vast salt pan, 12,000 feet up in a remote high plain of the Andes, is that it's also the largest natural mirror in the world. For most of the year, the salt flats are as dry as a desert. But in the rainy season between November and March, a shallow film of water collects on the surface. And the effect is mesmerizing. The entire world is seen in reflection. Earth and sky become indistinguishable. Come in the day and you will be walking on clouds. At night, you will be floating in the Milky Way itself. Locals call it heaven on earth because of the way it resembles that classic view of a celestial eternal paradise. The sky reflected in mirror symmetry below. But on the other side of this heaven, he found hell on earth.
1: In this city called Potosi in Bolivia, um, there's a mine there which was one of the mm, biggest uh, silver-producing mines in the world. Um, And I guess it's been mined until there's hardly anything left now. But there are still hundreds of men who go in there every day trying to make a living. Um, And it was really, really eye-opening and really sad to see. I took a tour and I went deep into the mine. You know, when you see boys who are 16-year-old and they're just chipping away at the rock face... Trying to scrape together pebbles that you know will be crushed and eventually produce some silver, Um, but it was so sad to realise you know their life expectancy is about forty. They work kind of fifteen or eighteen hour days in these horrible conditions in this unbelievable heat and with all the dust in the mine, and then they make something like a dollar a day for this unbelievably hard labour. And so it was it was really moving to to talk to them and get to know them a little bit and to realize you know this is their fate and then kind of the whole realization that what they're mining it gets sold on through a bunch of global companies and then eventually someone makes an enormous profit out of it not them not the guys doing the labor but you know some big company and that's the silver that goes into our iPhones and our laptops you know we we've just pushed our slave labor off into the third world so we don't have to see it anymore. It isn't, it isn't part of our daily lives, but it means our lives are better because those guys are working themselves to death. The
0: miners call Potosi the mountain that eats men. Many start working as children and spend their entire waking lives underground. Slavery still exists. It's a shocking thought. It's a shocking realization. And it exists to serve us. We just don't know about it. It's out of sight, out of mind. And so we end up unknowingly contributing to the exploitation of others, like the men and boys who literally work themselves to death in heat and dust and darkness for pennies every single day. And because of that, it's even more dangerous. If you want to find out more about what you can do to help the miners of Potosi, I'll put some links up on the website. But for now, We're going to pick ourselves up because we are about to go to one of the most amazing places I have ever been. Patagonia on the southern tip of Chile and Argentina, which is also now close to the end of the road.
1: I'm addicted to mountains. And so for me, I zigzagged between Chile and Argentina. I think I crossed the border about 10 times. If you're inland a bit more in Argentina, it kind of maybe looks like the Rockies in Colorado or British Columbia. You know, enormous mountains that at the right time of year they're covered in snow and really thick forests. Um, but as you get over close to the ocean in Chile, basically th- these mountains rise directly out of the ocean. Um, and so people say it looks maybe a little bit like Norway or Finland um, and absolutely beautiful and really, really remote wilderness. So, especially down in southern Patagonia. Um, you know, just dirt roads, really small little towns, very little infrastructure. And it's, it's just wilderness, you know, thousands of miles of wilderness. Um, and just hiking and camping every single day. Um, at one point, I went five months purely just camping in my tent on the side of the road. Um, and I was having the time of my life. I loved it.
0: During his five-year voyage around the world, Darwin stopped in Patagonia and wrote... No one can stand in these solitudes unmoved and not feel that there is more in man than the mere breath of his body. Patagonia has that effect on you. It is a vast and boundless land, just completely wild and desolate, virtually untouched by human hands. Bruce Chatwin, the legendary travel writer, called it the furthest place to which man walked from his place of origin. It feels like the end of the earth because it basically is... And the furthest south you can go is a place called Tierra del Fuego, a beautiful windswept national park on the southern tip of Cape Horn. And the only
1: town there is Ushuaia, and it's the most southerly port in the Americas. It's extremely beautiful down there. So it's, it's actually an island down there, Tierra del Fuego. And you wind through these enormous mountains right down literally until the, the land ends at the ocean. And so Ushuaia itself is on the ocean right at the end. And there's kind of islands dotting the the ocean. There's mountains behind you that actually get snow in the wintertime. There's a ski resort in Ushuaia. Um, So it's this beautiful little coastal town um, right down at the end of the world. And there's a national park down there. And you can actually, I drove literally to the end of the road. And then you walk about 100 yards and you can put your feet in the ocean at the end of the earth.
0: What a way to end a 40,000-mile trip. He drove to the end of the road, got out of his car and walked into the ocean. There was no more land, nowhere left to drive. He had reached the end of the earth.
1: It was a really amazing feeling, um, you know. Huge accomplishment, huge achievement. I drove forty thousand miles, so it's like it's a really long way. And to see all of those different landscapes, you know, all the mountains, the rivers, the lakes, the jungles, the, everything along the way is just—it's kind of mind-bending to realize, you know, they're all connected. Like that was a straight line. Um, but also, I, I thoroughly enjoy that realization and that understanding of when i look at a map now i have such a better idea of what's connected to what and how does it look like instead of when you fly over in a plane i I think you kind of miss that whole scale and that whole understanding
0: i think that must be one of the most incredible realizations from doing such a long journey the sense of scale you would get you would just understand our planet our world in a way that you can't get from flying over it on a plane or looking at a map you would understand it in a way that no one else could. How it's connected, how the land changes, how the people change, how big it is, but how small too, how close we all are, how different, but how much we're still the same. And it also changed him in some pretty profound ways too.
1: For the first week that I was back, I actually really struggled. I couldn't almost function. You know, we we walked into a supermarket and it was almost overwhelming. There was just so much stuff on sale and so many kind of flashing things in my face. I I couldn't really deal with it, I didn't understand. Um, And to see as well, like people just have so much stuff here. And I started calling it the land of plenty because people here just have so much stuff. And basically everyone we met would say, oh, it's nice to meet you, Dan, but I have to go. I, I have to go to work or I have to go here, or I have to go there. And that was really strange to me Because nobody had ever said that to me in South America. Not even once had anybody ever said, you know, oh, I have to go now. It was all like time is unlimited down there. But suddenly here, everyone is on the clock. Um, And yeah, that that was really hard to take as well. And that that realization that everyone here is time poor. Thing
0: rich and time poor. One of the lessons I really took from talking with Dan and reading his book is this link he draws between money and our, our obsession with acquiring things and freedom. The more stuff you have, he says, the more you have to pay for it, the more you have to work. The people he met in Central and South America may have had less possessions. They may not have had cool cars or big houses, but they had time to stop and say hello. They had time to be with their families and friends. They had time to live and do the things that they love. And at the end of the day, that is freedom. And I'll take that over a fancy car any day.
1: I'm just an ordinary guy. Uh, And I set out and I did it and I bumped into hundreds of other people doing the same thing and all of them completely ordinary, you know, no sponsors, no National Geographic. Lots of them don't even have Instagram and don't even care about it. Um, So most important thing to remember, there are tens of thousands of people out there right now living their dream, having adventures, exploring places, you know, whatever it is they love doing, they're out there doing it. And, you know, they can do it, which means you can too. You can
0: too. Here's something else Chris McCandless wrote. The very basic core of a man's living spirit is his passion for adventure. The joy of life comes from our encounters with new experiences, and hence there is no greater joy than to have an endlessly changing horizon for each day to have a new and different sun. That's what inspired Dan, and I hope that inspires you too. And if you are thinking about doing something like this yourself or just any kind of overland adventure somewhere closer to home, The place to start finding out about it is Dan's YouTube channel, The Road Chose Me. He has dozens of videos all about overlanding and how to plan and do that big adventure you've been dreaming about. Dan can help you make that happen, so please do check that out. I'll also link to his book, The Road Chose Me, Volume 1 on the website. Volume 2 is Africa, and I really hope we can get him back on the show to tell that story too. I have been so inspired by this. I'm already dreaming about doing my own big road trip one of these days, and I hope you are too. So thank you, Dan. Thank you for taking us on this incredible journey from the far north of Alaska to the southern tip of Argentina and the ends of the earth. And thank you to you for listening too. It's always so great to go on these adventures together. If you enjoy the show, remember to spread the word, tell a friend and help spread this message of living life to the full of connection to the outdoors and adventure, connection to other cultures and communities around the world. And that's important because the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive.